Tonight we come to the end of a series that I began, it seems like ages ago, it was late in May, and it was interrupted by the birth of our second baby, by, that slowed us down by a few weeks, and then by the joint services over the summer. So in a sense, although I've enjoyed the series, in a way I'm glad that we have reached the end uh, this evening. It's a series, you'll remember, where we've been thinking about how God's people experience His guidance in their lives. It's been a different kind of series than most of the series I preach here at Kirkpatrick because it hasn't been strictly following sequential Bible passages. Normally, as you know, I would choose a book of the Bible and preach my way through it or a a passage and follow it through, but this series has been a little bit different. But nevertheless, despite that, we've been keeping our, our study grounded at all times in God's Word. We've seen from different parts of God's Word principles of how God guides His people. We've seen time and time again many different examples of how God guides His people. So this evening, I hope we'll, we'll still be in God's Word, even if not following particularly one passage I have to say, I've been keen for quite some time to preach on guidance because I think it's an aspect of God's work in our lives that many Christians are interested in, and most of us would admit that we struggle a little bit with. We aren't quite sure how to understand all of this. And I've chosen to, to preach on guidance at this particular point in time. One of the things that has spurred me on to do that is the increasing number of younger people around Kirkpatrick. It strikes me that guidance is something, it's something that's interesting for all of us, but might be particularly interesting for people who are in the the years when they're starting to find their way in life, when they're starting to think about what kind of work they're doing, where they should live, what kind of relationships they're involved in, when life, in a sense, is still very open-ended and we're trying to find our way forward. Now, God, our need for God's guidance in our lives never, ever goes away. But I think it's a wonderful thing if a young person can come to terms with how God works in our lives at an early stage and can spend the rest of their lives learning and developing that. Tonight, in this last uh, sermon on this series, I'm going to split my time in two I'm not splitting it in half, just in case you panic when I finish the first section and you think I'm going to go for the same amount of time again. It's more like two-thirds and then a few minutes at the end. First of all, I'm going to introduce one last aspect of God's guidance in our lives, and namely that of divine intervention. And then I'll spend the last few minutes bringing the whole series to a close. Whenever we think about God's guidance and how it works in our lives, divine intervention is the last factor that we should consider. After we have done all that we can, after we've considered what God's Word has to say, after we've followed the desires of our hearts, after we've listened to wise counsel, after we've exercised our own wise judgment, it's still possible that God might step in and intervene directly in some way. You see, God is and continues to be a God of miracles, and we have to be open to the fact that God can step in 
to our lives at any given point in time to act. Now let's remember one last time something that we said right at the start of our series. I hope if you take one thing away from this series, you'll take this thing away. And that is that God doesn't guide us in response to us seeking his will for a difficult decision. That is bad practice for a Christian. If that were the case, if if that's the notion that we're running with in our minds, then, then we probably have this notion of God as being somehow distant from us, keeping his will hidden from us, and only showing us little tiny bits of it as and when we beg and grovel. Well, that's an unbiblical way to think about how God guides his people. The truth is that God is ready and he's waiting and ready to to draw us into his will and to guide us every step of our lives. Tonight, I, I want to say in the same vein that God doesn't intervene miraculously in our lives in response to our seeking his guidance. There are no examples in the New Testament of a person turning to God and saying, God, show me, and God responding. There are no examples of that. Whenever God does something miraculous in the New Testament, like the time when he showed the vision to Peter, or when he transports Philip miraculously from one town to another, it's not in response to any request. He he does it at his own initiative. The, The strange thing actually is that God, in both of those cases, responded and did what he did to men who already thought they were in his will. Not men who were seeking his will, but men who thought they were in his will. God acted miraculously to move them into a different point. So let's be clear about this. God has the power to step directly into our lives, to intervene miraculously. But that is not the normal way for God to act. And it's not a way that God acts in response to our request. Very quickly then, Bruce Walkie suggests that there are three roles or three circumstances in which he can understand God using divine intervention. The first is God revealing a crucial truth. The second is God saving a believer from an intolerable situation. And the third is God guiding a believer in a way that seems contrary to every other guiding influence. Very, very quickly, let me give you one example of each of these. First of all, God revealing a crucial truth. Acts chapter 10 is a well-known chapter in the history of the early church. And it tells the story of, of Peter and how God directly intervenes to show him a crucial truth. Peter's in a town called Joppa, and he's on the roof of a house praying there. And unknown to him, while he's praying, a Roman soldier of the Italian regiment of Caesarea is on his way to invite him back to Caesarea to meet the centurion there, Cornelius. Now, you must understand what's going on here. That's an invitation which Peter will flatly refuse. Peter is a kosher Jew. He will not spend time 
with an unclean Gentile, and he will not accept hospitality into a Gentile's home. That's Peter's response when that invitation arrives with him. And it's at this point that God intervenes. While Peter's in prayer, God shows him a vision from heaven. It's a vision that explains to him that all the Old Testament rules about what's clean and what's unclean no longer apply to God's new people, those who are in Jesus Christ. There are no longer any grounds for a Jew to keep himself separate from a non-Jew. The miracle is that when the soldier arrives, Peter accepts the invitation. And that's a, that's a massive change of his whole lifestyle for Peter. Peter goes on to visit Cornelius' house, and he explains to Cornelius how, how this is possible. He says, God has shown me that I should not call any man impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without any objection. Here, Peter had known a miraculous example of God's divine intervention. And on this occasion, the purpose was to reveal a crucial truth. But there is another situation in which divine intervention may occur, and that's when God wants to save one of his children from an intolerable situation. Just a couple of chapters later in the book of Acts, in Acts 12, we read about Peter He's arrested by King Herod, and he's remanded for public trial. Now, the believers are praying earnestly for Peter. Let me read a few verses from, for you, picking up in Acts 12, verse 6. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said. And the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Moving down to verse 10. They passed the first and the second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Do you see what's happening here? Divine intervention on God's part to save one of his people from an intolerable situation. An angel appeared. A locked gate in the prison opens by itself. Examples like this remind us, yes, that God is a God of miracles, and he can intervene at any point to save his people. This story and others like it have been abused by people who say that any time that one of God's people falls into danger or into trouble, God will intervene miraculously. Ask the Apostle Paul about that. Repeatedly scourged and whipped, twice shipwrecked, more times than that in danger of his life, God did not intervene miraculously every time that he could have on Paul's behalf. If we read the Bible carefully, we will find occasions where this happens, but we're certainly never encouraged to think that this is the norm. So that's a second case in which God can intervene miraculously. A third occasion 
is when God wants to guide a believer in a way that seems contrary to every other guiding influence. Sometimes God will do something absolutely out of the ordinary just to grab our attention, to to refocus us because everything else is pointing us in this direction and he wants us to go in this direction. Sometimes God needs to do, for example, what he did with Peter and he needs to change our perspective on his word. Friends, I find that a very humbling experience as a minister where you think you have an idea of what the basics of this faith are. And then sometimes I'm sitting in the study at number 17 Hawthorndon Road and bang! I just see something for the first time and it can be just a monumental shift in how I need to think of this life with God. That, that happens often enough. Sometimes God has to move us in the perspective of our own heartfelt desires. This is often the case with Paul. He's, he's dying to go and to preach in this town or that town, but God, God says, no, there's something different. One classic example is the, the vision of the man from Macedonia. Paul was dead set on going to a place called Bithynia, but God sends him miraculously a vision, a dream, and says, no, not Bithynia, Macedonia. Sometimes God moves to change our perspective of wise counsel that we've received or our own sound judgment. And last Sunday evening, I shared with you a personal experience of this. It was at a a time when I was considering coming to minister here at Kirkpatrick Memorial. And as you remember, one minister had told me, Kirkpatrick Memorial is the last place on earth that I would send you. And there were other voices raising similar concerns. It was at that point, and I've shared this story with you before, God intervened miraculously. He showed me in a way that I couldn't couldn't deny that this was the place he was calling me to. Friends, we've talked there very briefly about three ways in which divine intervention uh, does occur. Let's remember for the last few minutes together what we have learned together in this series. We've said at the outset that seeking God's will is a concept that's very common among Christian people, but that has little or no biblical basis. Instead, the Bible teaches us that God has already given us a way of him guiding us in our lives. He does that through his word. As as we spend time in his word, we get to know him and his ways. He changes our hearts and our desires as we spend time with him in his word. God expects us as well to, as we grow close to him, to grow close to his people, to seek their wise counsel, to to learn to to reason uh, in a wise way ourselves. Just one last time, you'll never, ever in the New Testament find a command to seek the will of God. The one thing that we are told to seek in the New Testament, seek first the kingdom of God. And when it comes to God's will, we're not asked to seek it. We're asked to do it. 
be doers of the will of God. Friends, I want to to repeat something I said in the, the opening evening of this series. The reason God doesn't want us to be rushing to Him and to be seeking His will for a particular situation here or a particular situation there is that that would undermine God's real work in our lives. God's real and biggest work in our lives is not to show us what job we should apply for or which town we should live in or which church we should go to. That's not God's will for our lives. God has already shown us his will for our lives. His will for our lives is to indwell us by his spirit, to see us mature in Christ-likeness, and to become the people he wants us to be. If God was a God who, who gave us answers every time we, we went looking for them, a rather strange situation could occur where we could think that we are living in the will of God, knowing what God wants us to do, but actually living at arm's length from God, keeping Him away from us. God says the only way you can know my will and walk in my ways is by knowing me, by being filled with the presence of my Spirit, by becoming more like Jesus. Friends, I'm almost finished, but I want to cut through any confusion that there might be and take us to the heart of the matter here. I've been learning that quite often when I talk about wanting God's guidance in my life, there's a bit of an irony because I find it hard to do the things I already know that God wants me to do. More than seeking God's guidance in our lives, we probably should be praying that God would make us more obedient to Him. It's our obedience that God values. There's a, there's a massive irony for us to be people who are saying, Lord, teach me, show me, show me how to live for you, show me what you want me to do, while we live with blatant disobedience in our lives. Friends, the that, that's a situation that God cannot be complicit in. God, God will not lead us and guide us while we're disobedient in major ways in our lives. I suppose the best way to test ourselves in all of this is ask ourselves, what is the motivation of my life? If you have a major decision ahead of you, and you're trying to work out how you should respond to it. Ask yourself that question. What is my motive in all of this? What am I really about here? Is it my own glory? Or is my heart and soul given entirely to the glory of God in me? If it is, then I don't think you need to worry about the precise outworkings of the will of God in your life. God will lead you and guide you, and he will bless you as you go. Philip read for us this evening from Acts chapter 17. He read a a long passage of 
what Paul said in Athens in the Areopagus. I asked him to read that because there, right in the middle of what Paul says, there's a verse that I find so, so wonderful and so informative. Paul talks about all that God has done in, in his steering of human life. And he says that God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. Friends, God is not far from each one of us. If you have any notion in your head of seeking God's will, of trying to, to coax God to show himself to you that keeps God at a distance, leave it behind. For once and for all, recognize the truth of, of God's word here. God is not far from each one of us. His will is that we reach out and that we find him. Friends, that, that above all is what it means to live in the will of God. Let us pray.